Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm talking a little bit about edible gardens. Firstly, I'd like to start with a new segment that I'm calling Correction Corner. And this is just my chance to revisit some topics that I've discussed previously, that I felt I was unclear about something or perhaps I stated something that was incorrect. So today there's sort of three main points. Um, The first one is that in my episode on quail, I was trying to tackle the question of how many quail are needed to produce the equivalent of a dozen large chicken eggs. And I was basing this on egg math done in the book I was reading, Urban Quail Keeping. And in hindsight, I'm not sure I was completely clear. So basically, according to the author of Urban Quail Keeping, she believes that it takes 13 laying quail hens about a month to produce the equivalent of a dozen chicken eggs, which is pretty simple when I put it like that. But I feel like my original explanation was a little confusing. So hopefully that clears things up. The second point is um, the Hive Jives Patreon, which I was discussing in my last episode. And I modeled up some of the um, bonuses that you get when you donate. So I believe what I stated was that if you donate $5 or more per month, you get um, access to instructional videos, but this is actually incorrect. If you donate $5 a month, you get access to behind the scenes bonuses, which can include videos, but you need to donate $10 or more per month to get access to the instructional videos. So I apologize for that confusion. Um, I do recommend that you go over to their Patreon page where all that information is available and I'll share it again in the, um, the blog post that will go up and that you can find by following my, um, by looking at the episode description and following the link. I'd also like to talk about my car analogy that I made last episode, where I kept on referring to something as the shift pedal, because I couldn't for the life of me remember that it's called the clutch. I swear I did learn how to drive on a manual car, but it's been so long that for whatever reason, clutch became shift pedal in my head. No, it is the clutch. I knew this. I'm so sorry. I must sound like a blithering idiot half the time. Um, Speaking of being a blithering idiot, many episodes ago, I referred to the hardened exoskeleton of insects as chitin. It's pronounced chitin. And I'd like to apologize (laughs) for uh, being misleading. I'm sort of terrible, honestly. I'm definitely one of those people who um, reads words, but often doesn't get to hear them being pronounced and then also coming from a country where I do pronounce things differently from Americans I do get confused about am I just saying it in the British way or the American way or have I just made up how to pronounce a word so those are my corrections um hopefully correction corner will be something that I only have to visit very occasionally but I do hope that that cleared things up a little bit um just some quick homestead updates the last nice day that we had in terms of weather where it was above 50 degrees I was able to confirm that all three of my hives were alive and active so fingers crossed that that continues I 
am very much looking forward to this winter being over and getting back to being able to work with my bees and get into the hives and not have to worry so much about whether they're all dead. But of course, nice days in Ohio over winter don't last and the snow returned, for which my chickens blame me. Um, something that no one tells you about when you're looking into chickens is that they will hold you personally responsible for the weather and will very, very loudly announce their displeasure if it's raining or snowing or windy whenever you visit them. So on the day it snowed again, I was greeted by a lot of very angry yelling from my girls, but throwing them some treats seemed to help alleviate a little of the pain. I've also noticed that um, the differing temperature seems to have affected egg production. Now I know that egg production is supposed to be based on the number of daylight hours and our days are slowly increasing, but I do see that there is some kind of a correlation between if we have like warm and then very, very cold and then warm and very, very cold. It does seem to upset some of the girls. And like, for instance, my Easter egg, Bobby, she was picking up her production and I was getting one of her beautiful blue eggs a day for about a week. And now she has um, declined again. And I did check her over and, and she's fine. She's just obviously a little disgruntled about the weather and I can't blame her. I mentioned in my episode two weeks ago that I was about to be pet sitting for my friend's three dogs, which would bring the total number of dogs in this house up to six. And um, yes, that was difficult. (laughs) Uh, Aside from the fact that I had to promise to get up super early with my husband every morning to help him because sorting and feeding six dogs is a lot to do by yourself. It was just the puppy um the Italian greyhound puppy rider he's very very sweet but he has two modes hyperactive and asleep and there's not really much in between and um we found that if you threw a blanket over him he would about 50% of the time fall asleep so my husband and I were constantly just chucking blankets at this dog in the hope that uh that he would take a little nap And um, in the afternoons, if he fell asleep, I would have a quick nap, like a mum with a newborn, um, just because I was so worn out chasing him around and chasing other dogs around. And um, he's very, uh, like, on you. So he's always jumping and pouring and uh, nipping and kissing and uh, shoving his toys against you. Like, he has to be touching me constantly. And it's not a gentle snuggle it's a pokey pokey poke or a nibble 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 and it got to me very very quickly um I think I mentioned that I'm a bit of a hermit and I don't think I really appreciated how quiet and gentle my puppies are so um I have to say that I appreciate my babies very much for um, being so good with their hermit mama. And I was glad when my friends returned to collect their dogs, but I do miss them as well because they are, um, they're very sweet babies. And, you know, puppies are puppies. This is why my husband and I, when we foster, don't foster puppies. (laughs) But I was happy to help my friends while they took a little bit of a vacation. Valentine's Day has been and passed. Um, We don't celebrate, my husband and I. A long time ago, we were 
long distance. And so Valentine's Day then was a like a really good excuse to send cards and gifts and be all sappy because you know it's hard when you're away from the person you love but ever since we got married neither of us uh really care that much about the holiday so usually we'll just I'll grab some steaks we'll cook some steaks up maybe the weekend after and um it's business as usual but that's um that's just how we are we kind of focus on birthdays and Christmas a little bit more Uh, I will say though that in the sale aisle um, at my local grocery store with all the like leftover valentines cards and gifts and candy there was this really cute little alligator plushie that I had to get for my husband who as I've mentioned before is really into reptiles and alligators and all that kind of thing and I got that for him um, and he loves it (laughs) so that's great now getting on to the topic for today um when I started making my notes for this I quickly realized that there was actually a lot more to cover than I had originally anticipated so what was supposed to be one episode is now being split up into three possibly four depending on how the rest of my uh, note taking goes but for this week um I'm going to be talking about tomatoes peppers and some herb plants The next episode, which is part two of Edible Gardens, will be the remaining of the herbs that I want to discuss, salad gardens, full leafy greens and parsnips. And then in part three of this uh, series, I'm going to talk about the three sisters method, which is corn, beans and squash, um, sunflowers and then um, pasture plants and possibly wildflowers, which will that will be in the final episode. third episode of this series. So the sources that I've used so far um, are four books. The first one is called The Bountiful Container. It's by Rose Marie Nichols McGee and Maggie Stuckey. This is actually one of the very first books on gardening that I ever bought and I love it and I still use it. I've had this book for 12 years maybe and it's wonderful Um, even if you are not a container gardener there is some really incredible information in this book and I actually relied on it relatively heavily for this uh, this week's episode I also used a hundred plants to feed the bees by the Xerxes Society if you're not familiar with the Xerxes Society uh, it's a really incredible group of people who are focused on Um, helping pollinators survive and they cover all kinds of things from the honeybees that we know and love to what farmers can do to encourage pollinators what um, like golf courses can do what we can plant they just cover everything Um, I'm going to link to their website on my blog post and this book is an absolutely stunning book it's very easy to flip to the page so let's say you wanted to find out about um there's a pasture plant called vetch you can look it up you can go to that page there are beautiful photographs and then just a quick rundown of you know what kind of environment vetch needs how it grows what it looks like why it's beneficial you know what pollinators it attracts and so on I also use the book Vegetables Love Flowers, which I found at my local library. It's by Lisa Marie Zegler. And it's a really, really great book that is primarily about having flowers um, 
I believe you call them cut flowers, flowers that, you know, you cut for bouquets and to bring inside. But it's talking about um, growing those as complementary or companion plants for vegetables that you might already be growing and again beautiful photographs in this book I really love the way it's laid out I do recommend checking it out and finally um, the last book that I used is Backyard Harvest by Joe Whittingham this book is again beautiful photography wonderful pictures and it's laid out in a month by month fashion that's really really interesting because each month she'll say what you should be sowing what needs to go in the ground um what you can be harvesting and even like what you could be using up so over some of the winter months she'll talk about like if you have any leftover squash and what you can do with it and there's some information about canning or making jams things like that so it's very interesting and the first chapter is kind of a good overview of um, what you need to succeed in gardening like your light sources and things like that so those are the sources that I used primarily for um, this episode and the um, two that will follow it so first I want to talk a little bit about my plans for the garden um, and I s- kind of decided to split it up into three main categories. What I know for sure that I want to grow, what I'm considering growing if time allows and then what kind of preparation needs to be done to achieve these goals. So in terms of what I want to grow, I know that I want to get tomatoes and I'd like at least one cherry tomato plant. Those are my favorites. I eat them like candy. And then one regular slash, um, it's sometimes called a salad sized tomatoes. You know, the kind that you're going to slice up and you're going to put in your sandwiches or your salads. I definitely want to get bell peppers. I eat a lot of bell peppers. I absolutely love them. I'd like to grow basil. Borage, I'd like another climbing rose. I have some giant sunflower seeds that I'd really like to get around to planting. I would love to get more lavender and I'd like to expand the kind of mints that I have. What I'm considering, if time allows, um, includes rosemary, lemon balm, chamomile, the three sisters method, which is corn, beans and squash, leafy greens like kale, collards, mustard, things like that, parsnips, pasture plants like alfalfa, clover, vetch, catnip, goldenrod, and I put borage again. (laughs) I really need to double check my notes before I I start recording. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, for preparation, I've already started thinking about this because um, I go outside and I'm like, oh, as soon as the ground, you know, as soon as the snow is gone and the mud is gone, I can start like properly getting out there and doing things so I'm kind of anxious but what I have to do really here's here's what I need to do to prep my garden the biggest one is branch and debris cleanup I know I've mentioned many times that I live on a wooded lot and it is beautiful and I am grateful for my trees I I'm a little obsessed with trees I absolutely love them I find them very peaceful but they do drop a lot of branches and we actually had our fence has been damaged relatively severely by a large branch thankfully not enough that the dogs can escape but it's definitely you know something that needs to be done and then we just have a lot of miscellaneous sized branches and twigs all over the lot that are going to have to come up and it's going to take me a long time my next big task is mulching the leaves I wasn't able to mulch all the leaves that fell 
before we had our first snow. So once things start to dry out, I, you know, go over it with my mower. I get all the leaves mulched down and then I move them onto various beds or put them in the compost pile. The leaf and compost pile is going to need to be turned uh, because it's so cold right now. I've just been dumping the chicken waste on top of it. That all needs to be turned over. I need to make a new hive stand if I'm hoping to expand, which is my plan. I'm going to be putting up a visual block for my hives. This is something that I recommend a lot of people do just so that if you live somewhere where people can look into your or onto your property, it's probably better for everyone if you just don't let them know you have the bees there. Um, it avoids people complaining or blaming you if they get stung by a wasp and decide that it was one of your bees. And it's something I haven't done yet because I just have the three at the very back of my property. But if I'm going to be expanding to six hives, that's going to be a lot more noticeable. I want to put something up so that as you drive by my house, you can't see them. I need to get new garden beds going, um, a couple in ground, I need at least one raised bed and I've decided to try my hand at container gardening again. As always, I need to weed everything, I do this all by hand, it's extremely time consuming but it works. Then I would be putting wood mulch on all my beds, it's something that um, is slowly starting to build up and prove beneficial in terms of weed regrowth and preventing it. I've got a wildflower straw mix that I'd like to put on my side garden because it got kind of neglected uh, last year and I'd like to focus on that. I'm going to make wildflower seed bombs to throw on the parts of the lawn that um, I can't mow at certain times of year due to various uh, soil conditions like it gets bogged down things like that. I want to finish the path in the backyard it just needs to be done. I have to do my milky spore application on the lawn in time to prevent the Japanese beetle larvas from turning into adult beetles and eating everything. And of course, once uh, we get regular warm weather, I will be out with my little push mower uh, constantly, usually once a week out there getting everything mowed so that my neighbours love me and don't come round and passive aggressively ask me if I need to borrow a mower. So... That's my list. Um, I am not a strong gardener. I just want to throw that out there. Um, I have been dabbling at various things for years. I, uh, When I lived in Rhode Island, I actually had quite a successful container gardener, garden going. Um, in parks, I just lucked out in terms of where I could put the containers. And it was just, it was a very small lot and I was able to get great sun. It was right by the tap so I could plug the hose in. I also had almost... Um, no other responsibilities so I could put a lot of work into it um, but since then I've had moderate success I spend most of my time since we moved here weeding getting um, the kind of what's already there in my garden as a foundation like there's a lot of beds that have already been established here but have kind of when we bought the house had run wild and so a lot of what I'm doing is just building upon the previous foundation and because I don't use any kind of um, chemical weed killers or um, things for the lawn it takes a lot longer so going into this episode please just keep in mind that as in a lot of my episodes I'm not talking from a point of I have all this experience I'm an expert and I'm telling you how to do things this is just what I've researched which I hope will be helpful to you and um, 
you know, some of you listening might be uh, quite established gardeners. And if you hear anything that's incorrect, please let me know. Or if you have any suggestions, things that can help other gardeners, you know, drop me a line, um, leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. So just a couple of things to consider for your garden beds, whether you're going in ground, raised beds, containers, is light, you know, um, what direction will you be placing them? How much light would they be getting per day? Soil quality, drainage and rainfall on your property, your personal access to water, where are your taps? How far are you going to have to lug a um, watering can? Uh, Do you have a hose that stretches to the bed? Things like that. Are the gardening beds accessible to you? If you put them too far away, do you feel like you're going to neglect that bed? Because I've definitely done that. And are they visually appealing? Do you like where they are? Can you enjoy them? Things like that. So the first vegetable that I thought, well, technically it's a fruit. (laughs) When I thought about edible gardens is tomatoes. I have kind of a love affair with tomatoes. And I didn't always. Um, Tomatoes are a little bit like honey for me in the sense that when I was younger, I thought they were gross. And then once I actually got to try like a proper homegrown tomato, I realized that I'd be missing out. One of my earliest memories is um, my paternal grandfather who has, um, he passed away right before my wedding. So it's been about 12 years now. He lived in Cornwall which is a beautiful little coastal town in England. And um, one of my earliest memories is that we used to go and visit him and half of his tiny garden were these huge tomato plants that were taller than him and he was six foot. And just beautifully uh, positioned in perfect rows, just absolutely ginormous, deep green, glossy tomatoes tomato plants with these huge beautiful red tomatoes on them and my grandfather used to walk out pluck one of these huge tomatoes straight off the vine rub it on his shirt and then just bite into it like it was an apple which I thought was both fascinating and disgusting (laughs) as a child Um, and I never understood what he saw in them and why he put all this work into them until I had my first container garden in Providence, Rhode Island, and I grew my very first tomato plant. And I plucked my very first cherry tomato straight off the vine and popped it in my mouth. And it was absolutely delicious. In fact, I'd actually like to share a quote with you that I found in the Bountiful Container book that I really think sums up part of the beauty of tomatoes. So the authors say, If you could take the soft, warm air of a summer afternoon and turn it into a taste, it would be the taste of a thoroughly ripe tomato, warm from the sun, tangy on the tongue and sweet at the same time, simultaneously juicy and velvet firm. And I just think that's perfect. So what is a tomato? Well, like I said, we group it as a vegetable, it's technically a fruit, meh, whatever. Most of us know that. It might be helpful in some kind of pub quiz. It's a member of the nightshade family, which includes potatoes, peppers, and eggplants. It's native to Central and South America. It's an annual, and transplants are recommended for a lot of us. It's sun-loving, 
The harvest season is late summer through early fall and the minimum soil depth that you'll need is 12 inches. And I'm going to mention this a lot because I think it's an important point and it's particularly important if you want to do container gardening because too shallow of a container is going to cause problems for you. Now when we're looking at tomato plants there's two kinds. There's, uh, the first one is called the indeterminate, which is also sometimes called a vining tomato. And this is the tomatoes that my grandfather would grow. The main stem grows to over six foot in height, so it's absolutely going to need support. And the idea is that when it reaches your desired height, you don't have to let it grow to six foot. You can pinch the growing top of it to stop it from growing higher. And it needs just moderate pruning as it grows. The other type is a determinate, also known as a bush tomato. And this is a much smaller plant. It grows to two to three foot tall, sometimes four foot. You don't need to pinch the top to prevent it from growing because it has that predetermined height. It has side shoots that will develop and spread out, hence the bushy term. It tends to mature a little earlier than indeterminate plants. It's perfect for container gardening and you want to do minimal or no pruning on this at all. And then in terms of what size tomatoes, the actual fruit you're looking for, um, the main categories are cherry, regular or salad and beefsteak. Beefsteak being those like absolutely huge ones. So I mentioned that transplants are recommended, but you can start with seeds. If you do start your seeds, it has to be indoors, somewhere warm, and you're going to be using a sterile seed starting mix. And you want to try and start those seeds six to eight weeks ahead of the spring frost date. Now, I actually have to admit, I don't know when my local frost date is. So I went to the Farmer's Almanac website and I put in my zip code. And according to my location, uh, the last spring frost date will hopefully be on May 2nd and the first full frost is on October 13th. This means the growing season is approximately 163 days for my location. And the way they come up with these estimates, it's based on prior years, um, but most people use these as just sort of a standard guideline. So let's say you've started your seeds indoors and your seedlings have sprouted and they have two to three sets of leaves. It's at this point that you can move them over to a larger pot with a deeper substrate. You're going to want to make sure that good light is always available for your seedlings. Um, And this means that for some of you, you're going to need to get grow lights. Something to keep in mind is that whenever you start seeds indoors, You might think, I'll just put them up on a window ledge somewhere and they'll be fine. But keep in mind that at nighttime, that window area might get quite cold and that can stunt or kill any new growth. So for a lot of us, if we're starting our seeds indoors, we might be using um, grow lights so that they're somewhere warm away from drafts or even those small pop-up greenhouses that you can put somewhere out of the way. Now, in terms of transplants, this is what I have experience with. I always go out and buy them. And um, really, there's just a couple of things to look for when you're going to buy them. Um, You want to find a stocky plant with rich green leaves. 
If you see any that are like very tall, leggy, scraggly, or the leaves are pale, give those ones a miss. Um, in terms of the temperatures that you're waiting for, you want a night temp that's consistently above 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And you also might want to consider, if you do go to your garden centre and pick up some tomato plants, that they might need some hardening off depending on um, the environment there. So for instance, okay, I don't recommend buying from Home Depot, but I'm going to use them as an example. Home Depot, their garden centre is often outside but covered, which does help some, somewhat in maintaining temperature, and they might not need to be hardened off but I would probably still recommend doing it to be on the safe side. That said, the reason I don't recommend Home Depot for plants, um, I buy a lot of wooden stuff from there. I'm not against the company, but I don't like Home Depot because their plants come from places, which if you read the labels, say that those places have used neonicotinoids, neonicotinoids, something like that which if you have been paying attention to any of the news are um, a kind of um, insecticide that is extremely deadly to bees and pollinators. And I will post something about it on my website. So don't recommend going to Home Depot or Lowe's. They're the same. I think they might source from the same area. Um, if you have a local garden centre, you know, you can go and you can ask them how they grow and how they treat and all that good stuff. But moving on, what do we need to do to be successful with tomatoes? Tomatoes are going to need support. I'm sure most of us have seen various kinds of um, tomato cages. Um, you can really use almost anything like a, a nice heavy wooden stake works just as well as a tomato cage. Keep in mind that even if you're planting in a container, you still need some kind of support. And that is another reason why the depth of your container is so important, because obviously a shallow container isn't going to do well if you're trying to put the support into the soil. So keep that in mind. Tomatoes love water. Um, you do have to water relatively heavily with your tomatoes. And this can be an issue if you're container gardening because your containers will dry out a lot faster. So you'll be watering more, but also heavy watering can wash out uh, beneficial nutrients in the soil in your containers. So you want to regularly feed them throughout the growing season. When you're looking for a plant food, you want one that is not heavy in nitrogen. Nitrogen is going to encourage the plant to grow really big, glossy leaves and not very much fruit, which is obviously not what we want. Um, it was recommended in the Bountiful container to look for liquid seaweed, as this is a good source of food for tomatoes. And you can feed that every two to four weeks, depending on how heavily you need to water. Some potential problems that you might um, encounter with your tomatoes are um, blossom end rot which I think a lot of us have probably seen it's where where the um, flower would be on the fruit as it drops away it's like a, a blistered spot that is left behind and that rots and you, the fruit is inedible or can't even grow and this can sometimes be caused by people who let the soil get completely dried out and then heavily water and then it dries out again and then they heavily water. So 
in terms of preventing it, you can try your best to do steady, even watering throughout the growing season. Some gardeners also think that a lack of calcium in the soil can contribute to blossom end rot. So when you are transplanting your tomatoes into their bed, um, after you dig the hole, you can put a little bit of agricultural lime or crushed egg egg shells if you are a chicken keeper, and um, then put the, the transplant in. And this is supposed to help. You might also have to deal with something called blight. There's early blight, which happens early in the season, and late blight, which happens later in the season. And blight is a very pesky fungal disease. Uh, It lives in infected soil. And some of the symptoms are uh, leaves that develop brown spots that start to spread. And then the whole plant will very quickly begin to rot. The downside with blight is that it is very hard to eradicate, but you can try a fungicide treatment. I haven't listed any because I don't have experience with them. I would recommend if you have problems with this or have in the past, that you go to your local garden centre and you ask them for advice or what they would recommend for treatment. One thing... um, that you can do that might help to prevent it is keep your tomato plants well spaced out to allow for good air circulation. Late blight in particular often happens when the weather is very hot and very humid and the air is relatively still. So you really want to encourage good air circulation so that the air is not getting stagnant around your plants. You can also remove all plant debris from any bed that you're using at the end of the season. This is sort of the idea of if a plant did have blight, you're removing that plant from the ground completely. So hopefully it's not going to be transmitted into the soil. Another thing that you might have, and I used to struggle with this, is the skin cracking that you'll see on tomatoes where the fruit the skin of the fruit will form cracks that eventually completely split open and then that fruit becomes unusable and it's due to uneven watering and I used to struggle with this a lot I was watering my tomatoes in the morning and again in the evening and it just still wasn't enough and this was back when I had containers because I wasn't paying attention and I didn't realize that I had to be watering a lot more than I was I just wasn't fully saturating the soil So again, we're back to that whole try and do steady, even watering through the season. There are a couple of pests that you might see with your tomatoes. One is called cutworms. Now, you don't actually see the cutworms usually. You just see the result of them, sadly. So what you might notice is that the stem has been sliced off just above the soil line, which has caused the plant to completely fall over. If you find this... Dig around the base of the plant, sort through the soil and look for brownish kind of caterpillar looking worms. Remove any worms that you see and dispose of them in soapy water. And then I would also recommend scooping out a fair amount of that soil and disposing of it somewhere away from the rest of your garden. You'll then just have to replace your plant sadly, but before you do so, put down some fresh potting soil from a new bag, which hopefully doesn't have any larva of cutworms in it. 
Another pest that you might see that I actually love, but obviously I don't want to eat in my tomatoes, but I love it in general, is the tomato hornworm. This is a chonky striped horned caterpillar that's actually quite beautiful to look at. The downside is that they're so big and chonky that they eat a lot and they'll eat right through your tomatoes and the leaves. The only thing you can really do is pick them off by hand if you see them. Now, something for those of you out there who might have reptiles, like myself, is that hornworms make really good reptile food. They're very high in protein and liquid. But obviously, you don't want to take an insect from outside and feed it to your pets because you don't know what that insect has consumed. But what you can do is you can bring the hornworms inside put them into a clean enclosure and feed them food that you know has not been treated with anything that would be problematic like a pesticide and feed them for about five to seven days which should be plenty of time for their digestive system to completely purge the previous food that might have contained something that would be dangerous. At this point you should be safe to offer them to your reptiles but if in doubt just don't do it or talk to your reptile vet. So in terms of harvesting tomatoes, um, something to keep in mind is that indeterminate plants tend to ripen from the bottom upwards, whereas determinate types ripen almost all at once. Now, there's always that time of year when you're desperately hoping for a little bit more warm weather so that any green tomato tomatoes will start to ripen. And something that I always forget is that if you take a completely green tomato and you pluck it off the plant and bring it inside, it will not ripen. You need to wait until the tomato is starting to blush with that first color change from green to red or yellow or purple or whatever color the tomato is before you take it off if you want it to continue ripening inside. Now, once the weather dips below 40 degrees, you're unlikely to see further ripening. And if you do have fruit on your tomatoes at this point, you're just going to have to remove them or else they're going to rot. But never fear because green tomatoes are delicious if fried or pan seared and served hot. I actually love, love, love green tomatoes. I do them in the pan with just a tiny bit of olive oil. And then I put... Um, salt, pepper, maybe a little bit of garlic pepper on them and then um, garlic powder, sorry. And then I serve them with like scrambled eggs or something and it's delicious. I absolutely love them. So something a little different that I wanted to do in this section and I'm going to do this whenever I can is talk about companion plants, plants that complement your edibles in some way, either by keeping pests away, attracting pollinators or using nutrients in the soil that aren't a priority for your veggies and fruits. So your veggies and fruits aren't competing with the plants around them for needed nutrients. And some companion plants that you could put with your tomatoes include amaranth, which is sun-loving and it attracts pollinators. Basil, also sun-loving and it attracts pollinators. Borage, which is said to repel tomato hornworms. I don't know how true that is, but it's worth a go. And borage is also um, an amazing bee food that I'm going to talk about later in this episode. Bee balm, which is a pollinator plant. Mint, which is a pollinator plant. Garlic, marigolds and calendula, which can act as trap plants for aphids. 
and also produce beautiful flowers that you can cut and bring into the house and when a marigold plant is actually in full bloom you can cut as much as twice a week during the peak growing season so you'll have beautiful yellow plants to bring into the home. In terms of what you don't want to plant with your tomatoes um, I know a lot of people will plant tomatoes and peppers together but generally speaking you want some distance between your tomatoes and other members of the nightshade family so keep a little distance between tomatoes peppers potatoes and eggplants and then you're also going to want to keep them away from cabbage beets peas fennel and dill now, in terms of pollinators, because of course, I cannot get through an episode without talking about bees, right? So tomatoes, they can self-pollinate, but obviously they rely on the wind to do this. They need a strong enough wind to break the pollen loose and then let it fly through the air to other tomato plants. So a pollinator that's very beneficial for our tomatoes is a bumblebee. And who doesn't love bumblebees? I once had a dream that I found a bumblebee that was the size of a cat and it was my pet and it was the best dream ever. And I wish bumblebees came in that size. But in terms of tomatoes, bumblebees are important because they're, um, they do something called buzz pollinating and they're referred to as buzz pollinators. And what this means is that a bumblebee is out and about And let's say she sees a tomato flower and she goes and she lands on it. Well, she lands on it and then she vibrates rapidly. And this vibration actually forcibly expels the pollen from the tomato plant, both for her to enjoy and for it to drift through the air and go find other tomato plants. So buzz pollinators speed up the pollination process when they visit tomato plants. And bumblebees aren't the only bees who do this with tomatoes. Um, Other buzz pollinators that will visit a tomato plant include carpenter bees and mud bees. There's also a few species of sweat bees, which are small, very shiny native bee species to the US. Um, Although the sweat bees, um, it's believed that they don't use buzz pollination, actually. It's actually thought that they chew through the base of the flower to get to the pollen. But they're so small that they're not really damaging the flower when they do this they're still helping to pollinate the plant and that's what I have on tomatoes for you hopefully that was a good overview and it gave you some ideas of what you'd like to do Um, obviously you I, I couldn't even start listing all the kinds of tomato plants that are available, all the varieties. There's just so many. So grab some catalogs, you know, jump online, um, talk to your local garden centre, see what's going to be coming available and start putting together your list of what you might like to grow. So in the same family as tomatoes, in the nightshade family, I'm going to talk about peppers, particularly bell peppers. These are annuals. They grow to about 12 to 6 inches in height. Transplants are recommended. Their harvest season is late summer. They require full sun and a minimum soil depth of 8 inches, but obviously more is better. Now, bell peppers are one of my favourite vegetables. Um, They come in so many different varieties, all different sizes and shapes and colours. They're actually so popular in terms of their appearance that you'll now find a number of ornamental varieties that you can get to jazz up your garden beds, your containers and even the windowsills inside your home. 
So something that a lot of people don't realize is that all peppers start green and achieve their final genetically programmed color as they ripen. Green peppers are therefore the earliest harvested peppers and in areas that have very short growing seasons and not a lot of sunshine, that's kind of all they get. Um, they, They aren't able to get their peppers to the point where they fully ripen as peppers need lots of sun and heat. So again, transplants recommended, but you could start with seeds. And it's a little tricky, honestly. Uh, The seeds need to germinate at 80 degrees Fahrenheit for two weeks. And then they need six to eight more weeks before they're going to be ready to be transplanted. And the soil needs to be kept warm during that time. You'll then need to very carefully harden your young plants before moving them out. And you have to wait until the night temps are consistently above 55 degrees Fahrenheit with day temps of a minimum of 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And it can be tricky because if you put your transplants out a little too soon, cool weather can kill them extremely quickly. But if you plant too late, you can miss the season because you need that time and heat to get the colour, the full ripened pepper that you're aiming for. So transplants for a lot of us they're what we need, right? They make life easier and we can wait until the temps are warmer to run out and grab those plants. Much like with a tomato plant, when you're looking for a pepper plant, you want to avoid any that are very tall, leggy or have very pale or like brownish curled leaves. And it might feel counterintuitive, but don't get plants that are already flowering or fruiting. When you transplant a pepper that's already growing fruit or has open flowers, it can actually shock the plant and then the plant just basically goes, okay, we're not growing anymore. That's it. We're done. So if you do find you go to your garden center and every single plant has flowers and fruit on it, what do you do? It's pretty simple. You can grab it, bring it home, carefully cut off the flowers and the fruit and then transplant it. It will then start production again. If you're in an area that has really wonderful daytime highs, but it's still a little cool at night, you can put some cover on the plants if you need to get them in the ground, just to give them a little prote- uh, protection overnight. Um, but again, you know, err on the side of caution. Maybe this is a plant that you're really just going to wait for the weather before you go and buy it. So how can we succeed with peppers? Keep them warm. But be mindful that very excessive heat, so generally speaking, anything above 95 degrees Fahrenheit will also kill them. So if you're in an area that's going through a heat wave, you'll want to move them to a shaded part of your yard during at least part of the day. Um, You also, in terms of how to feed your peppers, you're looking at a phosphorus rich fertilizer. And peppers can also benefit from three micronutrients, sulfur, calcium, and magnesium. Now, sulfur can be found in matchbooks, actually, or Epsom salts, which is probably easier. And then calcium is, you know, lime or eggshells. And the way you can incorporate these is you're about to plant your pepper plant. You put a little sprinkle of Epsom salts in the hole. You sprinkle in some eggshells put a little bit of soil over the top of that, then put your pepper plant in the ground. Now, in terms of magnesium, the books that I read recommended that you dissolve just a little bit of Epsom salts in water and very gently mist the plant um, once it's established in the ground and it's go, it's starting to flower. 
In terms of problems that you could face with your pepper plants, aside from the weather being capricious, you're looking potentially at having issues with aphids. I mean, most plants can struggle with aphids. Um, you know, I think we're all familiar with them, those little very, very pale green bugs that basically suck the juice from plants, killing them. Aphids are attracted to tender new growth, so your transplants can be particularly vulnerable. Another downside to aphids is when they're not sucking the juices from plants, um, when they actually uh, bite into plants, they can sometimes transmit disease. If you see aphids on your plants, you can knock them off with the hose or by hand. Um, if it's very bad, you might need to use an insecticide or soap. You can DIY your own, uh, grab a spray bottle and mix some dish soap, about a tablespoon of some kind of oil, you know, it can be castor, olive, um, canola, and then top up the rest with water, shake it thoroughly before application and then spritz it on your plant. You can, if your plant is particularly vulnerable, you can spritz it, leave it for an hour or two, and then gently rinse off by watering the plant. You might know that you have aphids by seeing a lot of ant activity. Aphids secrete a sweet solution that ants find very appealing and will be attracted to. So if you see a lot of ant movement going into a container or a flower bed, check your plants for aphids. Another pest that you might deal with is um, something called a flea beetle. It's very small. It's the size of, the, of a flea, hence the name. And it's going to eat tiny, tiny, tiny holes in your leaves. They're quite hard to get rid of, sadly. But something you can do to help prevent them is use row cover, raise up your containers, and in general, keep any plant debris away from the base of your plants to um, help prevent the spread of flea beetles. Something that you might also face with peppers and tomatoes, actually, is um, tomato mosaic virus and tobacco mosaic virus. This is a pathogenic virus. Symptoms include blistering on the surface of leaves and the stem, very frilly, fern-like leaves, brown and necrotic spots on the plant. It is an issue for plants in the nightshade family, so tomatoes, peppers, potatoes, as well as petunias, snapdragons, delphiniums, and marigolds. Sadly, once a plant is infected, there's absolutely no cure, and you'll need to get that plant out and away from your other plants as soon as possible. But something you can do is just look for resistant varieties of peppers. In terms of harvesting, the more peppers you pick, the more the plant is going to produce. So what this means is that it's recommended that early in the season, harvest those green peppers. They're still absolutely delicious. You can have them raw in your salads or you can saute them and add them to curries, pasta. The list is endless. So pick some of those green peppers early in the season. But later in the summer, let the peppers ripen to their full colours. You're going into like the peak warm season there it's ideally all the conditions are perfect and you're going to end up with a beautiful colorful harvest in late summer when you're removing peppers use scissors clippers or a sharp knife to very neatly cut the stem i'd also like to give a quick note on hot peppers that i haven't really covered because the care of them is similar but also full disclosure i'm not interested in growing them i do like spicy food but i know oh I like spicy food, it doesn't always like me, but I also know that I'm not going to use 
any hot peppers and that even a single plant will produce a lot more than I could use. But I did want to talk about them quickly because they're still very interesting. And something that people might not be aware of is that it's the concentration of capsaicin that gives peppers their fire. And the heat level of peppers is measured in something called Scoville units, which is named after the inventor of this system of measurement, Wilbur Scoville. So hot peppers, and there's so many different varieties, it's really fun to look into them all. They vary very greatly in heat level. So to give you an idea, the popular jalapeno pepper that I think most of us are familiar with has a listed heat level of 2,500 to 5,000 Scoville units. Whereas the super chili pepper, which is an all-American winner, has a listed level of 37,500 Scoville units. That's a spicy pepper. And I thought that was pretty cool. The next section that I want to talk about is herbs for your garden. And it just occurred to me, I should have mentioned this earlier. I know I mentioned a little bit in my correction corner about pronunciation. I am British. (laughs) You might have noticed by now. I say tomato, I say herbs, and I'm about to say basil. So brace yourself. And I'm sure you know what I mean. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is basil. Not basil. No, basil is fine if you're American, but it's basil if you're British. Oh, like faulty towers, which hopefully lots of you have seen. And if not, go now, go forth to YouTube and look up faulty towers and enjoy classic British humour. So basil, most of us are familiar with it. It is delectable. It's one of my absolute favourites and it's pretty easy, generally speaking. So basil is an annual. It grows to about one to two feet, although I have seen them get taller. Not necessarily a good thing. It needs full sun. It loves, 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 loves sun. You can start with seeds or transplants. It um, has the harvest season for it is summer and a minimal soil depth required is eight inches. There are so many varieties of basil. You could spend all day flipping through a catalog. Very, very fun. And a nice thing about basil as well is it's a really good good border plant, excuse me, especially with tomatoes. One of my favorite things to do is get a ripe tomato, grab some fresh basil leaves, slice that puppy up, mix them together with some olive oil, salt and pepper, and a little dash of lemon. Oh my God, it's so good. I love it. It tastes amazing. So how can you succeed with basil? Well, you're going to want to use a potting soil which you've mixed a little bit of sand and some dolomite lime into if you can. I have had success just using basic potting soil, but let's just talk, you know, ideal situations here. You're going to want it to go a little bit dry between waterings because overwatering basil is going to be very detrimental. It's recommended that you feed your basil when you plant it and then again around midsummer and you're looking for a high nitrogen food. To keep the plant bushy, so it doesn't get too tall and too leggy, you want to pinch off an inch or so of the growing tip as each of the new branches develops. Before you put it into the ground, wait until night temps are reliably above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, or if you wanna get it in as soon as possible, you can go in when it's a little cooler, but you're going to need to cover it at night. 
Do keep in mind that cold temperatures will completely stop its growth and even a very minor frost will kill your basil plant outright and there's nothing more depressing than coming out and finding this like sad black little basil plant where your beautiful green beauty used to be. In terms of harvesting, it's kind of a cut and come again plant. You know, you snip off the leaves as you need them and the more you're harvesting, the more you're encouraging the plant to keep producing. As fall approaches, if you can't bear to let your basil plant die, you can dig up the plants, place them in a small container and then bring them inside to somewhere warm and sunny. I will say that I usually put multiple basil plants in and I let at least a couple get kind of overgrown and I let them flower. And the reason why is pollinators. The white flowers of basil, aside from actually being very attractive to the eye, are attractive to pollinators. Um, During my reading, I found that there's a, a type of basil, a lemon basil, which is a hybrid, and it has larger, much showier flowers that are quite attractive to bugs and seem to get more visits than regular basil or other varieties of basil. Basil also makes something called a great insectary strip plant. Now, according to 100 Plants to Feed the Bees by the Xerxes Society, an insectary strip plant is a row of quick flowering annuals sown between food crops to attract beneficial insects for pollination and pest control. Pretty self-explanatory, right? So basically, you could plant a row of basil, at the front of your um, tomato, let's say you have tomatoes in a bed and you do a big old row of basil, not only does it look great and then you can pluck basil and tomatoes at the same time, but those basil plants are going to attract in pollinators that are then beneficial to your tomato plants and the rest of your garden. So basil plants are said in particular to attract bumblebees, small sweat bees, aphid eating syphid flies, tiny beneficial wasps and our much beloved honeybees. Speaking of honeybees, which I could do forever, we're going to talk about borage next or borage, 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 borage. It's lost all meaning. Anyway, you've probably heard about this plant if you have honeybees because they love it and it's considered very beneficial. It is an annual. It grows above three feet. You can start with seeds or transplants It needs full sun. The harvest season is spring right through the fall. You need a minimum soil depth of eight inches. And there's just one species. It's uh, Borage officinalis. That's it. Um, Most of the other plants I've talked about today, so many varieties. This one, you're looking at just one species. Now, borage is an aggressive, self-sowing annual plant. So some people have actually mistaken it as a perennial. And it's native to the Mediterranean, which might be why it's so beloved by the European honeybee, because they would have um, lived together for so long before we brought them over here. Now, when planted in the ground, borage is very large. It's multi-branched with big hollow stems covered in bristly silver looking hairs. And it can take over a space very rapidly. But in a container, it's much better behaved because it can't achieve its maximum growth with the space that you're allowing it, but the container does not inhibit flower production. And that's what we're looking for here because it's the flowers that make borage so special. 
Not only are they absolutely beautiful, they're little star-shaped and a very pretty blue colour, but they also produce a sugar-rich nectar that honeybees can't get enough of. Now, something I didn't know about this plant is that flowers and leaves are edible. So the flowers are popular with bakers who will crystallise them in sugar and then use them to make very pretty little star-shaped decorations for cakes. In terms of the leaves, you want to eat only the tender new leaves that haven't formed bristles yet. And you can add them to salads because they have a soft cucumber flavour. Now, something I did come up in my research um, or come across in my research is that some people have a mild allergic reaction to the alkaloids in the leaves so I don't recommend cutting a ton of them if you've never had them before and just eating them as a salad on their own just try a few leaves see how you feel um as I mentioned before borage will spread and absolutely hog space so if it's going into the ground make sure that you have enough room for it and it's not going to crowd other plants If you know that your space is limited or you're worried about it spreading too much, use a container. And the Bountiful container recommends using a mix of the following plants for what they call a sensational mixed planter. So they recommend getting one borage plant, one bronze fennel that you plant at the very center of the container. And then around the edges, put in some kind of soft yellow flower plant like moongleam, nystatiums or lemon gem marigolds and to really make all of those colors pop you can paint the container a royal blue and that's just going to emphasize the soft blue of the borage flowers it's going to offset the bronze of the fennel and the yellow from the um the border flowers in terms of success you don't actually have to do a huge amount with borage. Um, You will need to cut it back regularly to encourage um, growth and also to shape it so it's not completely wild. It actually grows well even in quite poor soil so you don't need a huge amount uh, for it. You can use an all-purpose potting soil um, and a minimal fertilizer at the beginning so just fertilize it a little when you do the transplant. Otherwise, don't feed it through the season unless you can see that it's struggling. You don't want to be um, out there watering it constantly. Overwatering it is a bad thing for borage. And don't be afraid to prune it or cut it back. It will it will keep going. If you pick the flowers regularly, they're going to encourage more growth. And you can stagger seeding dates for longer bloom periods. However, you might not want to pick the flowers too aggressively because again this is a wonderful honeybee plant so you want to make sure your bees are getting the benefit and all your native bees are getting a chance to enjoy some of that pollen and nectar before you pick the flowers so like I said bees love this plant and I actually originally only knew this plant because of my interest in bees so it's great to find out that if I do plant it I can actually eat some of the leaves and I can benefit from the pretty pretty flowers and part of the reason that it is so popular with honeybees is that the sugar content of its nectar is 52 percent and if bees feed almost exclusively on this plant they're going to produce a dark rich looking honey 
Borage also secretes nectar throughout the day, unlike a lot of plants, which will secrete it either kind of earlier in the day or later in the afternoon. And it will even keep secreting going into cooler weather. The main pollinators that it services are bumblebees and honeybees. An interesting side note that um, the Xerxes Society mentions in their book is that butterflies and other flower visitors actually don't tend to feed from borage, which is really interesting to me because I would assume that because of the high sugar content of the nectar, that all the pollinators would be all over this thing, but apparently that's not the case. So the final herb that I want to talk about today is chamomile. Now, if you're anything like me, you might never have seen a chamomile plant or walked past it and assumed it was a daisy. And you're only really familiar with it when you see the little dried petals that are used in cosmetics and tea. But chamomile can be quite a nice addition to your garden. It comes in an annual or perennial version and it grows to about 12 inches for the perennial and about one to two feet for the annual. You can start with seeds or transplants, you want full sun to partial shade, a minimum soil depth of eight inches, and the harvest season is late summer through early fall. It is very popular, um, used as a tea. I've seen all kinds of claims about the tea helping with menstrual cramps and digestion and things like that. I don't know how true that is. I like chamomile tea with a little lavender to help relax me if I'm having trouble sleeping or I want just a soothing drink. And it's also used a great deal in cosmetics, particularly those aimed at skin and hair care. So just a little interesting note about chamomile. If you're allergic to ragweed or chrysanthemums, you might also be allergic to chamomile. So that's just something to keep in mind. There are two main varieties of chamomile. There's the German chamomile. This is the annual. It's a small upright shrub with very little daisy-like flowers. It is self-seeding it is drought resistant and this is the one that is preferred for tea and cosmetics then you have roman chamomile that's the perennial it is a small plant and it kind of spreads and stays lower to the ground than the german version although the flowers are identical now roman chamomile has the sweeter scent or fragrance but it brews a little bitter when used for tea which is why it's not as popular for that it is, however, a wonderful ground covering plant that can tolerate some light foot traffic. So it's great to kind of throw in the edge of beds or in areas where you might be walking through. If you have sort of a cottage garden thing going on, um, that's honestly what I'm leaning towards. It would be nice to try one of each, a German chamomile and a Roman, but I would love to get some ground covering plants. So it sounds like Roman chamomile might be a good fit for me. Now, in terms of starting from seed, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, the only thing to keep in mind is that the seeds are very, very tiny. So don't sow them too deep. Don't let the substrate dry out. Don't overwater them. You know, just take care of those little baby seeds. Um, something to keep in mind is that the Roman chamomile seeds germinate best in warm soil of about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And German chamomile seeds prefer a little cooler soil of around 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Seedlings will tend to emerge within about 10 days. In terms of transplants, nothing special is really needed there. Just wait until after frost has definitely passed and the night temps are reliably above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
in terms of harvesting, uh, you'll, you would mainly be using chamomile in tea or for cosmetic goods, um, unless you're just, you know, cutting them to bring in because they're pretty and they smell good. So if you want to use them for tea or cosmetics, then you need to look at the chamomile flower and realize that it's two parts. There's the yellow center, which is made up of actually tiny, densely packed flowers. And it's this center that has the pollen and that's harvested for our use. It's the little yellow bits that we use for our tea and cosmetics. And then the white outer flowers are actually ray flowers that look pretty, but we don't use them. So in terms of when to pick the flowers, you know they're ripe when the petals begin to curl backwards towards the center, which is usually in late summer and early fall. And your options in terms of separating the yellow from the white petals really just depends on what you prefer. You can pluck all the white petals first until you just have the yellow and then dry those, or it can be a little easier if you dry the whole flower and then separate the two colors. It's whatever works for you. In terms of potential problems, chamomile is overall quite a hardy and pest resistant plant, but it's sometimes vulnerable to something called powdery mildew. And it's most at risk of this during prolonged hot and humid weather. And again, really the only thing you can do to prevent this, since as far as I'm aware, you can't control the weather, is make sure you're not overcrowding your plants so that there's enough air circulation. Sometimes chamomile can have an issue with aphids, thrips and mealybugs. But again, this they're not very vulnerable to these and you can just treat these as you see them with an insecticidal soap. Now chamomile is a really great companion plant for things like broccoli, kale and cabbages, onions, beans cucum and cucumbers. And they also just make a beautiful addition to your herb garden. Um, they look wonderful, whether in a planter on your deck or in the ground. And so it's something that you could definitely consider. In terms of pollinators, I couldn't find any direct sources, but I found a lot of articles that said that chamomile flowers are attractive to hoverflies, beneficial wasps, ladybugs, and the beloved and ever popular European honeybee. And that's it for this week. I would love it if you would join me again in two weeks for episode 14, where I'm going to be talking about even more herbs, salad gardens, leafy greens and parsnips. As always, I love to hear from you guys and you can find me at Homestead Huns and Honey. Homestead. It's been, it's been a long day. Can you tell? You can find me at Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram and Facebook homestead hens on twitter and tumblr and you can email me at homestead hens and honey or one word at gmail.com or if you go into my episode description and you go and click on the link to my website you can comment directly on my blog post or send me a message directly through my website i appreciate you all so much for sticking with me and listening and reaching out and liking my posts on social media if you get the chance, please leave me a, re a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Recommend me to your friends. Say, I don't know, hey, there's a crazy chicken lady with a wonderful British accent and she talks about bees a lot. Do you want to give a listen? And then send them the link. <laughs> so I am going to go and have a huge cup of tea now. 
it's actually cold here. It's, um, it's in the 30s, but the sun is shining. And from where I'm sitting talking to you all, I can see the bird activity in my yard is picking up. I have some beautiful nut hatches coming in and I think I need to go sit for a little bit wrapped up in a blanket and just watch the birds. So if you get an option to do so, I hope you do the same. I hope sunshine is happening wherever you are, even if it's cold, the very least it could do for us is be sunny, right? So please join me in two weeks, take care of yourselves and as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Cheers.